Do you feel like you've been underestimated along the way? As I've gotten older, I care less about that. I guess early on, you know, it's it's it is hard when you're known as um, as doing something to make a change. Yeah. But every time that I ventured outside of what that is and the fact that it was a goal of mine to not be put into any kind of corner box and then to realize like no it was more a matter of like how I felt about it and what was my own perception or the you know once I convinced myself that no I can I can try this and I can try that and I I don't need to be stuck I don't need to let anybody else and I don't need to do that for my to myself um, I think that was really helpful from ABC it's no limits I'm Rebecca Jarvis, and each week we're talking to the most bold and influential women playing at the top of their game, trying to demystify success and what it really takes to get there, and all the trade-offs. Whether you're looking for answers or you just want to hear a good story, you're in the right place. On today's episode, she's been recognized as one of Time's 100 Most Influential People. Christy Turlington Burns became one of the most famous models in the world. She started her career as a young teenager. She's received international acclaim, but today she's the CEO and founder of the maternal health organization, Every Mother Counts, where she's made it her mission to make pregnancy and childbirth safe for women everywhere around the world. And the reason I wanted to have her with us today is to talk about taking that passion, something that is deeply a part of your personal mission statement, and making something of it, starting a movement around it. Also, how do you keep from getting stuck in a box of expectations? She clearly has reinvented herself or at least found ways to break out of what people might have expected of her as a model. And finally, in honor of Mother's Day, how can you help mothers around the world have healthy pregnancies? Here's our conversation. Christy Turlington Burns, welcome to No Limits. Thank you. It's great to be here. It's great to see you. Happy early Mother's Day. Thank you. Happy Mother's Day to all the moms who are listening right now, including mine. Happy Mother's Day, Mom. You are the founder and CEO of Every Mother Counts, and I'm so glad we're having this conversation now, given the work that you've been doing now. I mean, this is now almost a decade since the film. That's right. And the entire idea behind Every Mother Counts. That's right. We launched uh, around a documentary film that I made uh, back in 2010. And the organization Every Mother Counts kind of was birthed from that film. And I had no idea that we would end up doing what we're doing, which is we are a grant-making foundation and we are doing lots of storytelling and filmmaking and campaigning to make sure that women um, are safe through pregnancy and childbirth. But at the time, it was just I was trying to raise awareness. I had had a personal experience that sort of opened up my eyes to um, challenges that many, many millions of women um, face every day with Uh, regard to accessing quality and respectful maternity care in a timely fashion. And that film just really kind of opened many, many doors um, to do work that I think is so important, not only internationally where we have grantee partners, but here at home in the U.S. where we are doing very poorly. When you had your scare, what happened? So I had a great pregnancy. I was so ready to become a mom. I felt like I had so many options. I had a supportive partner. I I really wanted an unmedicated birth and natural delivery. So I, I 
I found a great midwife who was affiliated with a hospital here in the city that had a birthing center, which is a very rare, uh, rarer and rarer um, thing. And everything was great. Like I, if I could redo every part of it, even the postpartum complication, honestly, because I have been able to do so much with the experience. But it was really after delivering my daughter, who was perfectly healthy, and everything was fine. She was breastfeeding. Um, you know, we were bonding. I was in a room in a birthing center where we could move around and my husband could be there. And, like, it was just a perfect, like, everything that I wanted. And then, you know, about a hour or so after, there was concern in the room that sort of escalated because I didn't go into the fourth stage of labor, which is when you deliver your placenta. And so in my case, the placenta had um, had grown into the uterine wall, and because of that, it needed to be extracted, and because of that, um, I, was, I hemorrhaged. And if you're in the right place, or you have the right people who are identifying or managing the, the complication, you would have blood on hand if you needed a transfusion. Uh, there would be certain measures or um, interventions that would then stop the bleeding and then, you know, antibiotics and all the other things. Now, imagine if you don't have a team or a person even who can identify what's even happening. And then if you're in a place that is not hygienic or if you have a team um, treating you that hasn't been trained in postpartum complications or in hemorrhage, um, that sets you up for the absolute worst outcome, which could, you know, cause death for both mom and baby um, in some instances. So it's it's a lot about planning and preparedness and making sure that you have um, measures around you to ensure the safest outcome possible. This is all part of your journey and part of the journey that leads to Every Mother Counts. I want to go back a little bit in time to your childhood. You're growing up in California. And as a very young woman, you started modeling around 13, 14 years old. Where was your head at that time? Was it something on your radar? Was that was that part of the uh, little Christy wants to be a model someday? I had no idea what the profession was really. I, I really didn't. My mom says in retrospect that you know, I was tall, so she thought, oh, I might, I mean, she might be able to model, but she never suggested that. Um, I really fell into it. My sister and I were, um, my sister's two years older, and we both were equestrians, and we rode after school every day. And there was a photographer who happened to be at the stable where our horses were kept. And uh, he watched us for a while. Then he reached out and said, hey, have you ever thought about being a model? Which I said, no. My sister said, yes. Um, <laughs> Every and, day. And then we, she convinced my mom to allow us to go and have a photo shoot um, done. And honestly, the whole thing was incredibly uncomfortable. I was never naturally um, uh, confident in it. It was just like, this is awkward. You're a grown man. I'm a child. I don't even talk to grown men. Like, the whole thing was yeah. awkward. Were you an uh, introvert? Yes and no. I was even thinking about that about myself today. And I think, like, half introvert, half extrovert. Like, in so many instances, I would much rather just, like, stay secluded, not be social. And yet, I've been in a profession, and now even as an advocate, where I am in the public eye and where I am using my voice all the time. Um, so it's a weird, it's a weird contradiction. Um, but I think my natural tendency is to be more private and more quiet. I think about this too, because I would actually sort of describe myself similarly to that, where there's a, it's almost like when there's a controlled environment where you know what your role is, 
being extroverted. That's true. Because you have a passion behind with Every Mother Counts, for example. If you're on the stage talking about that, you feel passionately about that. But the being extroverted in a random conversation, right? you know, at a cocktail party or whatever, unless you're talking to your closest friends about something that matters to you. It's awkward. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And it's hard to have... It's hard to have that kind of intimacy where you would actually have this authentic moment, right? And I you think want that, it to be a real interaction. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, early on, I just um, I was in this industry which started slowly. It wasn't like an overnight thing. I, I was in school. You know, I graduated from high school. So I, I even when I started working more and coming to New York more often, I was always going back and forth to school. So I was sort of balancing normal teenage life with a very not normal teenage life, but a really fun one. <laughs> what did people say? when you were coming back to California, were they aware of what you were doing in New York? Some were, because I was doing some local modeling, too. So every now and again, like my picture would end up in, a, in the paper. Um, <laughs> but most of my friends were, they didn't think that was anything very cool about it at all, actually. Um, maybe that I traveled a bit, or maybe that I could come to New York and maybe go to a nightclub that was known across the country. Because in California, it was a lot harder to do that. (laughs) Um, But they didn't, like the job itself, I don't think anybody was envious of or thought in any way, shape, or form it was like a cool thing to do. But my travel and my experiences in that way, I think people would be like, oh, wow, you know, where'd you come from? That was a little bit hard to sort of adjust to, you know, to come from Egypt the first time I went there and to come home and do a test. And somebody said, what were you this weekend? I was like, well, I was actually in Cairo. And I got to <laughs> 24 see that, hour you know. flight to Cairo and I'm back. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that is very hard for people to get their head around if they don't travel or I don't have that kind of perspective. Luckily, my family did because my parents both worked for Pan Am and they both had traveled all over the world. So there's, I think, still not a place that I've been that one of my parents had not been before me which was nice. And you weren't afraid of airplanes. I love an airplane. I st- even more now because it's like the only place that I can go and sort of be on my own. <laughs> yeah, definitely. This is why when there's talk of um, phones working on airplanes I someday, like I never idea. want that to happen. Mm-mm. I don't really want to be I totally reachable. that my yeah. flight did not have Wi-Fi. <laughs> yeah, the, the Wi-Fi was down. Um, so you're traveling the world. Do you think at any point... I'm I'm curious to think about how you were thinking of this as a career at the time. Were you thinking of it as this is what I want to carry me out of high school? How were you were you thinking of other careers at that moment in your life? I think it was a little early to be really thinking seriously about a career. Uh, I didn't even thought about college at that point. Like I really didn't think like where would I want to go to school? What would I want to study? Um, but my dad was a pilot, so I had one of my ambitions at the time is like, I want to be a pilot one day. Um, That's my, cool. My sister that didn't model, she got her pilot's license. She didn't fly professionally, but she did. So she followed that um, for a little while. I also really liked, uh, I liked the idea of being a writer. I think I liked the idea more than the, the than the, whether I had talent or not. <laughs> but I, I, re- I was always a big reader, and I, especially when I traveled a lot early in my career, I would read about the places, or I would go to places that I'd read about, or I would bring books that were based in the part of the world where I was. So I just had, I just love that sort of transportation that literature can do. Um, so I had a dream of like maybe being a writer one day or thinking about like, because I love to travel, what I could do potentially that would allow me to travel and write. And, you know, at a different time, 
you know, journalism in that way of like living, you know, working in a bureau in in sub-Saharan Africa, like that kind of thing was like, wouldn't that be amazing? Like real adventure and real, um, I don't know. I like the excitement of being off the beaten path. Um, but again, I just really didn't have the time. And then I was so busy for such a long time that it took me a while to say like, well, what do I really want to do? Like I didn't have any plan to work as a model for a very long. I That's the one thing I mm. was pretty clear when I started was that it wasn't a very long-term profession. So I already was already thinking like at some point I've got to do something else. So going back to school was the best way I could at least ground myself long enough to really explore my interests and to think about what that might be. You do strike me as such a grounded person. And I wonder where that comes from. I don't know. I mean, I, I do feel fairly grounded uh, most of the time. Um, I would say or I would say that I, I'm, I feel very much like I always was. So I think it could be a nature thing more than a nurture thing. Um, Your wiring. Yeah. And then I've always just, again, maybe that also thinking about extroversion, like to be an extrovert or be in a profession where there is that attention and to feel like that's not necessarily who I am or, or how I would like to be valued, that then I could go back in and like shut myself off. And, you know, I did that during my four years of college. I really, I was here in New York City, but I was not social at all during that time. I, I was, you know, 25. I was a return student a, as an adult and I really, I was catching up. I thought like, I'm going to be front row. I'm going to be top of the class. I'm not going to not read anything. I'm going to be like a perfect student. And I and I was, um, which was really satisfying. Absolutely. Um, at that time in my life. <laughs> I think a lot of people who look back on college wish that they could go to college with that hindsight and really apply themselves while they're there, I which you had the ability <laughs> to do. What, what did people say to you um, in the industry when you said, I'm going to go to school? I started saying it a few years before I did it, um, which was part of the like motivation, I think, to get me to Putting finally it out there. do it. I put it out there. I heard myself say it enough times. There was a lot of media around uh, the fashion industry right before I stopped. Um, just the fashion shows and having, you know, like 24-hour like fashion television. And it just was a lot of access suddenly. And... Uh, it it definitely forced me to have to answer questions about what did I want to do. And the assumption back then was, oh, of course, you're going to want to be an actress. And that was never, mm. never an interest for me. So I think, no, no, I want to go back to school, but just to sort of buy time to figure out what it is. And my mom had gone back to school in her 50s. And my older sister, the one who didn't model and who got her pilot's license. She went and got a liberal arts degree, you know, as a normal, like out of high school. And I kind of lived vicariously through her and through her curriculum. So that's what I studied, liberal arts, which was really nice and broad. And I could really delve into so many areas of interest from literature to art history to architecture to psychology. And I loved it. And I ended up really focusing on, um, strangely, or maybe not so strangely, but comparative religion. Uh, which uh, just because I'm so interested in culture and then that I was had had a yoga practice at that time too that was very very committed and I had a real interest in Eastern philosophy so I I kind of graduated with a, a concentration in comparative religion and Eastern philosophy yeah <laughs> when you ultimately made the decision to become a mom were you one of these people who always wanted to be a mom I don't know that I always thought that I would be be a mom, uh, but I didn't think I wouldn't. I think um, my sisters both became moms pretty young, 
in their mid-20s, and I was a really good aunt, so I had a, a lot of practice. And at some point, by the like right before I got married and before I got pregnant, those couple of years before that time, when I just got out of college, I was 30 when I graduated. So around 30, 31, some of my friends that were older than me were struggling with um, either fertility or were making choices, like early choices to say, well, I freeze my eggs. Like that conversation was really starting. And so I wasn't taking it for granted that that would be a given. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because shortly thereafter is when I met my husband and then we got pregnant fairly early. Like we got engaged fairly early and we got pregnant fairly quickly. Um, but I really had just come to the point of like the peace of mind of like, this isn't a given and that's okay. And understanding all that went into it. And I always will tell my friends that 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 struggle or that are thinking about it a lot, that to be thinking about it beforehand is so important and it makes you a better parent. Um, I think it all, it's, it's even my friends who have adopted, it's like, you put so much time and energy into having this child yes. when 50% of the population is not does not have that luxury, is like really falling into it. And it should be the most mindful, conscious decision of your life. It's a huge responsibility. And so part of what we advocate even as an individual or, or with Every Mother Counts is like, I want every woman to have like that support and that that information and the option and the choices um, to have whatever is right for them. One of the things that surprised me the most about the statistics around motherhood, the number of deaths of women in the United States there are associated with childbirth. Yes. Um, so globally, there are more than 300,000 deaths per year. And there is an estimation that for every one death, there are 20 to 30 that suffer near-death complications, um, morbidities is what uh, we call them. And here in the United States, the number of deaths is it's on the rise. We're one of 13 countries with a rising maternal mortality rate, yet it still feels like a small number compared to some of the developing countries um, where you might expect for maternal mortality to still be a problem. And I think when we think about the morbidities, because there are a lot of women like myself who endured a childbirth-related complication, but some of those women don't recover from those complications. If you don't die, you might have a lifelong disability that will not only trauma, but pain, discomfort, um, uh, incontinence. um, You know, there's some serious, serious uh, challenges that women go through and and that make motherhood very, very difficult. (laughs) It's almost impossible to even fathom because you think about the fact that, you know, women have been getting pregnant since the beginning of time. This is not a disease. It's not a new disease. Right. We could have been studying this from day one. So what's going on here? What's the problem? More No Limits after this quick word from our sponsor. Brought to you by Indeed. Used by over 3 million businesses for hiring. Where business owners and HR professionals can post job openings with screener questions. Then sort, review, and communicate with candidates from an online dashboard. Learn more at Indeed.com slash hire. There's a lot coming at you right now. Turmoil, tweets, an insane amount of chatter. I'm Brad Milkey with ABC News, and I am here to throw you a lifeline. It's a new podcast called Start Here, where our experts give you on-the-ground access to the biggest stories of the day. We're going to give you some context, some clarity among the chaos. 
20 minutes every weekday. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and start here. So what's going on here? What's the problem? I think I think because it's been going on since the beginning of time um, and because most births do go perfectly well. I mean, it's actually surprising in some parts of the world where I've traveled where there is absolutely nothing and that there could be a fairly straightforward delivery and outcome. It's actually shocking. But when you see women in places where that isn't the case, where there are other kind of chronic health conditions um, at play, where there are um, other kind of um, social determinants of health that are impacting not only her health in pregnancy, but her health just generally, um, those those kinds of things are maybe maybe they're they're di- more difficult in urban settings or more advanced um, societies. Maybe those kinds of outside pressures actually add more, mm. and that's why we're seeing more instances of hypertensive disorders, um, particularly in the West and in the U.S. Um, that's the growing number, right? Um, postpartum hemorrhage is still the leading cause of death all over the world, where there are um, instances of maternal mortality, but eclampsia. Um, you're still seeing infection, um, which sometimes is happening because you're exposed to um, germs in a medical facility or setting. Uh, you're seeing also because of over-medicalization, sometimes it's a case of or a matter of um, too much too soon or too little too late. Uh, women don't get the care that they need as quickly as they should because they think everything will be fine or they've been through it before and they had a really straightforward birth. But suddenly it's your second child or your third or beyond that that suddenly things are different. So I think it's the sort of unpredictability about pregnancy. Um, you know, you you want to go into it with a plan. You want to be ready. You want to be healthy. You want to have a, a consistent healthcare provider that you know who knows you. And that's the best way to start the whole process, right? As soon as those things are not there or they're missing or they never were, um, becoming pregnant and not having your health, uh, it just sets you up for a lot of potential dangers, right? With Every Mother Counts, when you set out to create the organization, what did people say to you when you started to have this evolution of, I need to do this with my life? I think, I'm trying to think, I... I did a little bit of work, well, a lot of work, actually, uh, before this period of time um, when I was at school around uh, tobacco. I had been a smoker in my teen years and into my early 20s. And then my father was diagnosed with lung cancer when I was at NYU and in my, like, around 26 or 27. And I quit, and I was confident as a non-smoker at that point, and I was doing a little bit of, like, public health advocacy around that issue. But when I lost my dad, Mm -hmm. I went deep into that work. And it was a great time because it was sort of the beginning of really changing behavior um, that was very accepted behavior up until then. Uh, In the late 90s was the very first Surgeon General's report on women and tobacco. We knew a lot about men and tobacco, but we didn't know anything about Mm -hmm. women and tobacco. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what really opened up my mind to women's health and the fact that our reproductive um, systems make us more susceptible to a lot of different things, heart disease. Like there's a lot of things that because we can carry another life uh, set us up for potential health risks. That's a really interesting point. Yeah. 
So when I, uh, I'd already kind of gone down a path of, you know, I'm interested in women's health. I'm interested in my experience. Um, activism, advocacy. Activism and, and, and public health. I mean, behavior change is such an important thing. And uh, I went to school later to work on a, a master's in public health. But when I think about even maternal health or maternal mortality, when you look at, at smoking and tobacco and you see how much changed so quickly, I mean, not quick enough for some. Sure. But in but or, think about the fact that there used to be smoking in restaurants and bars not that long ago. Yeah. And then all of a sudden overnight, every single exactly. restaurant and bar is done I think with about that. the tax on cigarettes or the warnings on cigarettes. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, my kids, when they see a person with a cigarette, they're like, what is that? I know. Now it's the worst thing in the world to smoke a cigarette. Yeah. And our parents would tell us that. Although my dad was a smoker, but they would all say that. But you didn't see that in the culture. Like you still saw cigarettes everywhere, and I think it helps to not have it everywhere. Um, but yeah, it just shows me like when when we think about issues, um, how long it can take sometimes to really make a change. Yes, um, I think I look at that, and I've lived through it, and I've participated in it, and I've seen how how things can change. Um, So that's what the hope is with maternal health. If there was one thing with maternal health that you could snap your fingers and would change around the world right now, is there something that would really move the needle for women around the world? I mean, to ensure that every woman has a person with skills at their side, like the appropriate skills, the appropriate level of skills for what is needed in the moment, that would be it. And that looks differently in different places and different instances. But, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a big believer and advocate for midwifery care or the midwifery model of care, even if a doctor is providing it. And what that means is it's built in respect. It's built in time that looks at a whole person and it looks at their lifestyle, but not in a way of, you know, bad mom or, you know, you're at fault for the situation that you're in. Really, like, how can we support you? How can we give you the support and confidence you need to be your healthiest, most confident self going into this um, very long (laughs) uh, role in your life? And so that's something that I think is really important. But I also think that there are a lot of people that work in the field that, you know, it doesn't have to be a midwife or it doesn't have to be an OB, that there's this sort of united front, right, that everybody's working together and that everybody has the interest of the mom um, and her health, you know, at the forefront, right, that like you would think that people that go in the business of um, taking care of women, that they are thinking about that, but that's not always clear and we're not always listening to women. So um, this is one of those things, I mean, if women could 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 be heard, could be respected, um, could know their bodies and feel confident in their bodies. And to advocate. I mean, I think that's as a patient in the medical system, it's one of the one of the weirdest things you sort of have to learn is to advocate for yourself. And when you feel something is off, to really be clear about that being off. Um, Because, you know, medicine is something that I, I don't know the first thing about medicine, but I do know my own body. It's true. And I think um, we could all, like, do better, right? I mean, listening to our bodies, um, taking that responsibility over our health. Um, There are some things that are out of our control, but there is a lot that is in our control with regard to our health. But you're right. It it takes training. It takes practice to be able to speak up for yourself in any instance. But I feel like... Um, healthcare and hospitals are definitely a place where I think, even seeing my father go through it, you just, everything falls away, all of your comp, and you do, you turn into a patient who is um, 
doesn't have all of the answers and doesn't have and has to rely on somebody else. And um, I think that needs to have more balance for for us to make some progress here. What's the biggest challenge? Gosh, I would say systems. You know, like mm. what we really need are systems that work and. Um, I was having a conversation earlier today, and you think like we could really, we could. There's a lot we can do in terms of advocating um, at the state level or at the national level for like legislation that looks more closely at um, maternal mortality and how do we define it and how do we um, like can we standardize the way that we do that across the country? And there's a lot we can do around identifying you know where certain kinds of healthcare providers are and where there are gaps and where people just don't have access at all. Um, I think the things that get much more complex are our system, uh, our insurance system, uh, the hospital system, um, Medicaid. Bureaucracy, um, red bureaucracy, tape. Bureaucracy. It's everywhere. It's, it's really so complex. And even if you have means and resources and have a, a a good relationship with your care provider, there's still a lot of hopes, way too many hopes. And so when you take away um, the haves from those who do not have just insurmountable challenges. And then if you have children already, small children already, or you're a single parent, which so many of our moms in this country are, it's just not feasible to jump through those hoops and to make it work. Um, so that's, I feel like if we could like, I don't, I'm sure I'm not alone. Um, <laughs> certain efforts have been made and it's just complex. I was actually at um, Columbia studying public health when ACA was first being sort of reexamined and broken down. And I was so grateful at the time because it was so complicated. Um, and yet I still came through it and I'm still confused because it, it's it's we've created a real mess for ourselves. Um, so when I look at other countries that have lower rates of maternal and infant deaths, when I look at uh, other systems that just have general um, you know, Sweden being like mm-hmm. England. Like these are these are countries that have universal health care. Um, these are these are countries where midwives and doctors and nurses are all integrated into a healthcare system, so that in at that time um, of a woman's life, that you know, it's just it's there. There are choices, and everybody's working together. Um, that you could just tell it's the there's not. It's, I'm sure there's some bureaucracies in every system, but ours just seems dangerously complex. You have gone to school, you have your master's, you have your modeling experience. Do you feel like you've been underestimated along the way? I don't know. I I guess I've gotten, as I've gotten older, I care less about that. I guess early on, you know, it is hard when you're known as, um, as doing something to make a change. Yeah. But every time that I ventured outside of what that is and the fact that it was a goal of mine to not be put into any kind of corner box and then to realize, like, no, it was more a matter of, like, how I felt about it and what was my own perception or, the you know, once I convinced myself that, no, I can I can try this and I can try that and I, I don't need to be stuck. I don't need to let anybody else and I don't need to do that for my, to myself. Um, I think that was really helpful. But I think that comes with maturity and it does come with experience. Um, I'm sure there are many because oftentimes no matter where I'm speaking or talking about this issue, what I did before is a part of that 
I get it. It's how I'm known. It's it's where I don't know. It's it's the way our public thinks. It's it's, it's I, I'm not surprised. But there are many of those audiences that know nothing about that, and I'd rather start from a place. How of cool like, is that, by the way? <laughs> you have to you have to really love when you walk into a room and you are the CEO and founder of Every Mother Counts, and that is how everybody in that room knows you. I love that, and I love it also when I'm in another country. People will say, "Oh, you know, what is it like if you're in Tanzania?" And do people know who you are? I'm like, of course not, <laughs> of course not. Um, and I and that is so great because there's not an expectation. It's it's simply at the very sort of human level of if you're listening and if you are respectful and if you are you know showing up um that other humans are going to meet you where you are mm-hmm. um and i think that's another thing that i would wish for anyone not just women but like anyone to have that chance to just be taken for who they are at face value in the moment and that might be something different from moment to moment for our listeners who are thinking about their own mission statement and wondering what do I do? What? Where do I take that first step? What's your advice? I mean, I think authenticity is really key, um, and values. Like, really, rec- like, what are your values? What, what, what in the world moves you? Um, when anybody asks me, like, what you know, I really want to do something, but I don't know where to begin. It is. It's overwhelming. the The need is overwhelming. The options are overwhelming. Uh, and there's a lot of clutter in our lives, right? So I think that that like practicing sitting still with yourself and 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 thinking about like, okay, this moves me. These are my values. How do I apply my values to that thing that moves me? And then seeing how it feels and seeing what opens up what door, and then seeing. I mean, I I have wanted to have some meaningful, purposeful life since early days in my life before my first career and I think it's just it it just took like okay I know that but at a certain point when can I stop talking about it and when do I put when do I put action into the equation and when do I realize like nothing's just going to come and knock on my door I have to kind of open some doors and see what's out there and, and what, what was feels the turning right. point for you where was the switch flipped I think I think for me having personal experience has been really important um, you know, the, I, I used to support a lot of other people's initiatives before I figured out. And that's great. It's great to support your friends who are passionate about their thing. And if they found it, like, that's a great way to sort of explore and see what it's like. Um, but for me as a model doing that, I felt like, OK, that just means superficially. That means that I show up at an event. That means, which is meaningful sometimes, but not always the most satisfying, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. not for the introvert in me. Uh, <laughs> but eventually, I was asked to do things that had a connection, right? The more people knew about my life or my story, I would get invitations to participate in something that was more connected to that. And so my mother's from Central America. She's from El Salvador. One of the first things that I started to do in a more active way was to support sort of post-war El Salvador. And that felt great because it was a connection to my mom. It was a part of my heritage. There was a lot of need. It was a place that really wasn't on the map or had a very negative association in in the news. Um, And then later it was my dad's death. So for me, it was very it was very personal things that I think resonated with me and gave me more. I felt like I had more I could say, more perspective. But I tell people this also: you don't have to wait to almost die in childbirth to go out there and and use your voice. Um, so 
I don't know. I, I think it's timing is also everything. Uh, it was also at a, a point in my life where I could step back a little bit from that first career, give myself the space to go back to school. The space allowed me to have more time to think about those things. And I think just being disciplined about giving yourself that time and continuing to challenge yourself. Like, well, I was going to do that thing. I was going to volunteer, but I didn't. Let me just make sure that I do it. And it's going to be hard at first, and then eventually it becomes becomes second nature. It becomes what you do, and it just feels good, and you want to keep doing it because it feels good. You have this yoga practice and this background in yoga. How did running become part of the whole thing? So, yeah, I've been practicing yoga since I was about 18, and uh, I, I was a runner before that. Um, I was athletic as a child. Uh, but I was invited to do a marathon in 2011 here in New York City uh, as a small organization just starting out. We were offered 10 spots. And at first I thought of the people that I know that run that I reached out to. But I also thought, like, this is my opportunity if this was ever on a list, which it had been at some point. And then I became a mom and I was like, how am I ever going to train for a marathon? <laughs> but uh, you make time. Um, and then I, I said, I have to do it. If, I, if this is my one chance, I'm going to do it. Uh, so as soon as I started training for the first race, I loved it immediately. Like, I remembered why I loved to run as a child. It gave me some of that peace and that reflection time that I, that I get from yoga, that I get from meditation, but also forced me to be outdoors, which is also good and healthy. And it gave me um, something that I really didn't expect. And it connected me so much with the issue because distance is an actual barrier uh, to women getting the care that they need. And so, like, every run that I would do and surpass the last, like, distance that I had, you know, conquered – I just kept, you know, it was like, I think I can, I think I can, to I know I can, to no, every mile, every mother, every mile, every mother. And that's my mantra when I run. And it's uh, it's truly what connects us to that. And I think it's what's brought so many people in. I mean, we've had thousands of runners now running with Team EMC um, to raise awareness, but also to raise funds to invest in the programs that, that we fund around the world. And so many people have either a personal story or they are in the healthcare field, or they have a spouse that has gone through some kind of complication, or they simply like wanted to join a team and then they learn about us and the issue through that experience and then they become supporters. It's been such an incredible like community building um, activity and we've traveled all over the world. I've run in Tanzania, I've run in Haiti, um, I've run in Guatemala, all countries where we work. And uh, now I'm like, I've done eight marathons. Like I never wow. would have imagined. That's incredible. Uh, and I can't wait to do my next. When, so. Do you know where your next marathon will be? I'm thinking that it will be, I want to do New York again. Uh, but I also would like to do Big Sur, which is a, a really famous, smaller race. Um, and I would like to do possibly Paris. I don't know. There's a lot of there's races in every. It's a great way to see the world, even places that you're familiar. I ran Tokyo in February, and um, just to run in a city that I've visited many times, but to see every neighborhood in that way. I mean, even New York City. I mean, you really get to see so much of this great city. For this Mother's Day, tell me about what you have coming up. So Mother's Day is obviously a big campaign season for um, for Every Mother Counts. And this year, we actually are, are giving people an opportunity to dedicate or to donate in honor of a mom. Um, we have a great, like, Mother's Day card where people can reach out to not only moms, but, like, women in their lives uh, who inspire them, their own mothers, 
um, friends, neighbors. You know, it's a, it's it's it should be inclusive. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have a film which we do every year, a short PSA, and um, I think it really, uh, you know. Every year we have this opportunity with heightened awareness, especially right now because we've been a lot more media coverage on our issue, but to remind people like what we do, um, how important it is to advocate for ourselves, for others, um, to understand what's happening at the global level as well as the local level, and to invite more of that participation. I think about what you've built in such a short span of time, and I wonder what 14-year-old Christy would have thought about all of this. I think about my 14-year-old Christy a lot because my 14-year-old Grace is right <laughs> Your there. Your daughter. Yes. And I, I you know, I can't ha- – I mean, it's so hard to remember, like, what was going on in my mind um, at that age, especially because I was already starting to work. And I think that kind of shifted a lot of my life more quickly than otherwise. But I look at her, and she's become an advocate for this issue too. Um, you know, she's – she is passionate about this issue, which is great. Like, yeah. so I wish I was turned on as early as her. I wish I had the skills that I've gotten through yoga that early. I wish I had the confidence that my daughter has. But I think that's one of the beautiful things that, you know, what women can do for each other is to create a foundation. And then the next generation or the next person can then stand on your shoulders. All that stuff is so true and so real. Um, So I really see it. I see like my life as a launching pad for hers. And I'm so excited just to see where she goes from here um, because she has so many options and so many interests more than than I remember having for myself. Well, she's lucky to have you as her mom and a great foundation. Uh, We were talking before we go. Worst advice. And you told me that you don't really remember your worst advice. (laughs) Yeah, I feel like it's the good advice that you remember. Hopefully you remember who gave it to you. Um, But I think part of it is that thing of like um, trusting yourself and knowing when you have any information outside of yourself. If it resonates with you, then it's good advice. If it doesn't, it's not maybe bad advice, but it's not good advice. It's not right advice for you. Um, So context is everything. And I think, you know, again, that sense of knowing, knowing yourself. Um, well enough to get feedback and have it help enhance where you already are or where you need that little bit of nudging. And you developed that sense? I think through yoga, I really would say. Um, I don't know. I mean, I I think it's that practice of, of listening, that, that like building confidence over time, um, maybe giving advice sometimes. And when you give advice, you're often giving it to yourself too. Mm-hmm. Um, so hearing it out loud, hearing those words, That's I think. That's a good point. I think an inner voice is important, but it's often a quiet one. Um, I think giving an external voice to that inner voice. Is well. there ever, I feel like I deal with this all the time where I try to trust myself. Mm-hmm. And I think I do at this point. But there are moments where you have two competing ideas that are both very strong. Yeah. I mean, I think that's also human and to accept that, too. I mean, I I once got to interview the Dalai Lama, and that was an incredible experience. And I remember asking him, like, what does he, cha- what does he struggle with? And he was like, well, you know, every day. I, you know, I could be stubborn and every day, like in my meditation practice. So it's like this is a highly evolved person who's yeah. been studying and working on himself for his entire career. And he is a spiritual being. 
so it just gives you the freedom to know that, like, don't be hard on yourself. Like, it's normal to have different sides of yourself that can feel like they're, like, very polarizing or that they're, like, pulling you in two different directions. Um, you know, I, I think it's just listening to, like, what's the strongest thing or, you know, where is the urge taking you? Listen to your gut and then knowing that, you know, you're not going to always just, like, make that decision and then everything feels great and falls into place. It's a process. Um, and I, I know myself pretty well, and I, I make mistakes every day. Like, I think I'm a patient person. I'm not that patient, it turns out. <laughs> um, you know, I, yeah, I, I can be really, like, hard on myself, and because I'm hard on myself, I'm hard on other people that are close to me, and that's something I need to work on. So everybody has work to do. <laughs> we all have work to do. This was a great conversation. Christy Trillington Burns, the founder and CEO of Every Mother Counts. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Rebecca. And quickly before we go, as you know, everybody has a team mm-hmm. of women and men who help them get it done. Who are some of the folks on your team you'd like to give a shout out to? Oh, gosh. So Wallace, who's with me today. Yeah, Alex. Alex. Perry. Um Danny, Yuki, gosh, no, I there there are people. I have a small team. Um, my husband, Eddie, mm-hmm. like uh, my kids, like all the people that are in my day to day life, like they help me get stuff done. And uh, and yeah, I'm so grateful because we can't do any anything alone. Grateful for you to be here. Thank you so much. So it's the end of the interview, which means it's time for our No Limits Entrepreneur of the Week, where we feature one of you, one of our outstanding listeners who's building something of her own. And this week's No Limits Entrepreneur is Anya Babbitt. She's the CEO and founder of Split, which is a ride-sharing startup that recently was acquired by Bosch. And what I really liked about Anya's story and what really caught my eye was the story behind her company. So she's working out of a hotel in L.A. for a few months, commuting downtown, using the hotel shuttle. But one morning, the shuttle's overbooked. She's stuck at 5 a.m., no ride. There's two guys also waiting for a ride at the hotel, heading in the same direction. They offer to split a car with her. So she takes this idea and creates Split, not just to make transportation more efficient for situations like the one she was in, but also to help conserve and to help the environment. So here's Anya to tell you more about Split. Hi, I'm Anya Babbitt. I'm the founder and CEO of Split, recently acquired by Robert Bosch. Split is an enterprise transportation management platform that is changing the way people meet and move worldwide, freeing up hours and cars from our daily commute. With We partner with organizations such as corporations, universities, and municipalities to develop customized carpool programs in a very closed network helping to promote green initiatives, attraction, and retention of employees and intercorporate networking. The platform enables users to see their matches prior to accepting the rides and communicate via the smartphone app. We're leveraging the fast-growing shared economy and Split connects people who are interested in saving money and time, reducing their carbon footprint, and or meeting someone new. So it's the perfect intersection of economy, utility, and sociability. Split's closed network platform integrates with multimodal transport, including car sharing, busing, and fleet optimization. In partnership with Lyft, Split also provides hospitals and other healthcare providers with on-demand, non-emergency medical transportation. We are active in the U.S., Europe, and Mexico. 
Congratulations, Anya Babbitt. Wishing you and Split continued success. And by the way, listeners, you can head over to my Instagram at Rebecca Jarvis to see more of Anya's story. Remember, if there's someone you want to nominate for a No Limits Entrepreneur of the Week, or if you have career questions, shoot me an email at no limits with rjpodcast at gmail.com. And to those of you who have been leaving reviews, thank you. Like Boppers. You go by Bopper5. I'm going to call that Boppers, who writes, I love this podcast. Rebecca is so engaging and genuine that her guests open up quickly and honestly answer her insightful questions. I love the range of guests and how smart and funny. Oh, thanks, Boppers. Rebecca is. I want her in my squad. Cool. Let's do it. As always, you can find me on Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, Twitter, and LinkedIn at Rebecca Jarvis. And don't forget to use our hashtag No Limits Podcast. And finally, a shout out to the team here that helps make this happen week after week. Taylor Dunn, my producer, editor Michelle Boncardo, research assistant Annie Osakwe, and the ABC radio team, David Rind, Elizabeth Russo, Josh Cohan, Andrew Kelb, and Steve Jones. Thanks all. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.